They say what you put into something is what you take out of it. And it's true. To me, nothing is more interesting than what a critic brings into a movie. Do they like the director or cast? Are they plugged into the buzz? What do they think of the trailers? The point of this podcast, then, is to give listeners a chance to hear from a top film critic, both before and after they've seen a film, and to see how people's expectations shape their opinion of a movie itself. My name is Matthew Modigal, and welcome to After the Credits. So this is something of an emergency podcast recording for me because this uh, this week's movie, as you know, is Ready Player One. That's the big thing that hits theaters this weekend. But we're a few weeks out from that because Ready Player One is surprise premiering at South by Southwest this evening. And here to talk about it is somebody that's actually going to be seeing it this evening, Ed Travis. Ed, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, what you write about, and where you write for. Hey, everybody. Uh, yeah, my name is Ed Travis, and I'm the... Um co-founder and editor-in-chief over at Synapse, which is C-I-N-A-P-S-E, uh, based out of Austin, Texas. And we've got writers all over the place. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to be here today. So this is the movie that you had requested a while back. Um, talk to me a little bit about your relationship. I mean, it's a, I suppose it's a pretty complicated question, but talk to me about your relationship with both Steven Spielberg and Ready Player One. Oh, all right. Um, yeah, well, the easier question I'll answer first, which is the Ready Player One question. Um, so, well, and also, I just currently have my fingers crossed about actually seeing it tonight at the world premiere because I don't have any kind of special access at all. So that's uh, true. That's true. That's, it's it's a gamble for those. Yeah, that's that's how South by kind of is. So as long as I get in line early enough, I should be good. But we shall see. Um, yeah. Well, part of the reason why I thought um, I'd like to be a guest on this particular episode is that. Uh, the book Ready Player One is written by Ernie Klein, who's an Austinite, um, and there's tons and tons of controversy around the release and that book, or at least internet controversy, that is. Um, <laughs> so I thought it would be fun to talk about that a little bit with you um, and just represent Austin a little bit with this movie. I think that's also why it's premiering at South By, because we've got a little local representation there. Yeah, and I can say I just got my Texas ID in the mail. So this is officially a conversation between two Texans about a movie written by a Texan. Wow. Two Texans who didn't at all grow up in Texas. Correct. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think my relationship with Steven Spielberg is pretty similar to many young males who were born in 1980, which is that I absolutely adore him and grew up watching his films and um I, you know, I, there was some sort of re-release of E.T. that happened in theaters, you know, after its initial release that my older sister took me to. And it, it totally broke me as a small child. And so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Steven Spielberg fan for sure. Um, but, you know, I don't know that anything I have to say about Spielberg is particularly interesting because everybody kind of has a love for Spielberg somewhere deep inside them. Right. Yeah, very true. Well, all right, then I won't, I won't make you talk too much about that. But let's talk more about um, Ernest Klein's book, because I, I assume you've read it. Uh, I've read it. It speaks um, certainly to you know a, a type of 80s nostalgia that is exactly going to hit target audiences like us, which is, you know, um, white men that were born in the 1980s. And it's funny because I've talked to some other people that have read the book and it seems to be I mean, you, 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 you hit the nail on the head with sort of that like Internet controversy about the release. But at least a lot of the people that I talk to, they're like, oh, yeah, I really love the book, and I'm totally fine with people shitting on this movie. 
it seems that there's some sort of self-aware of like, yeah, of course, of course it's going to come and hit people a little weird because it's basically about like, you know, that rundown of like, dude, do you remember Frogger? Dude, do you remember Super Mario Brothers? You know, there've been all those parody videos out there. So what, where did you land with the book? Because I, I feel like I'm totally comfortable saying I loved the book and also I don't think I'm looking forward to the movie at all. <laughs> okay, interesting. I'm glad we didn't talk about this beforehand because um, we're in a somewhat similar place, it sounds like. Um, I it, It's been a long time since I read the book, uh, but I was really interested in having just a little bit of a forum to talk about it because um, I sort of also loved reading the book. Um and uh, this was now a long time ago. I don't know, um, didn't look up when the book came out, but I'm pretty sure Six I read it. Six or seven it. years ago, I think, something like that, off the top of yeah. my head. Yeah, I mean, it was like still in hardcover w- when I read it. So pretty, you know, hot off the presses and maybe even before it was this like sort of huge bestseller kind of thing. And um, I just had a really great time reading the book um, and have been sort of like shocked at the amount of vitriol that's been kind of aimed its way. Um, I guess for me, I I just sort of feel like at, at worst, it's sort of like a, a harmless sort of nostalgia trip. And um, I, I don't know that I've really seen out there online any more compelling arguments against it other than it just sort of being a sort of nostalgia wank fest, as the internet would say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, you know, you, there's probably one of the big things I think that you get, especially a lot from, um, you know, non-white male critics is just the idea that this is, this is totally a self-reinforcement of like all pop, all, like all media, all entertainment caters to your superhero audience crowd. And this is kind of the, um, I mean, like it or love it, this is definitely sort of the, the pinnacle of that. Like there can never be more of a movie that is for superhero bros on the internet than Ready Player One. <laughs> yeah, I can hear that. I mean, um, it's, I, I guess I've, I've, what I've heard criticized, um, in its direction is sort of this, like, I guess, wish fulfillment, white male wish fulfillment kind of prophecy type of thing. And I, I hear that. I mean, I guess it's, we've seen a ton of those stories and, you know, just the general argument of, you know, the fact that so many stories are aimed at, at sort of nerdy white males is something I can hear for sure. And, uh, even agree with, um, I just have trouble feeling like ready player one does any kind of damage to anybody by its sheer existence. That's kind of where I've been with this book. Yeah. I I think it's important to, I mean, you know, somebody that really enjoyed it. Um, I absolutely could not stand his follow-up armada, but that's a whole other conversation for another time. Um, you know, I, I I do think one thing that often gets lost in these types of conversations about books like this is that, you know, I, I we're both in our mid thirties, we read it and we enjoyed it and we appreciated it partially because of the nostalgia aspect, but it's, you know, it is also these these when these get adapted to these larger properties, there's an element of not being for us in terms of being targeted for like a younger audience. Like this is a movie that is written with the complexity. Um, and with sort of the storytelling arc of like teens or preteens, it has a lot of eighties references that are going to go over their heads. It's definitely, you know, a movie that, or a book that was written for people that, um, two different audiences, one that is more our age and one that is young. But I have a feeling that when this gets adapted for the big screen, it's going to keep some of those pop culture references, but it's going to be sort of like this, you know, nine figure, um, YA adaptation. 
And so that's something that I'm kind of curious to see about is like if this movie does turn out to be more of a YA type thing, then, you know, this 90s nostalgia or 80s nostalgia thing, like how is that going to affect the reception? And are people that read the book and thought that it was absolutely 100% for them, are they going to be frustrated because they sort of like aged it down and broadened it out a little bit? Because that's Steven Spielberg has made a lot of really good movies for, you know, people that are 13 to 18 years old. And we sometimes forget that because we only talk, ever talk about the Jaws and the Schindler's List of the world. Right, right. Yeah. No, that, that is interesting. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I'm sure most of your listeners are probably aware that the, you know, box office tracking is kind of weak for this one. And I don't know, like, where, where were you on the trailer for the film? Like, what, what kind of reaction did you have to that? I was, I was pretty muted. Um, I don't know. It's it's a hard. It's sort of a hard thing to figure out because there's just so much in that trailer. <laughs> the, the trailer just throws. It really does. It like it like it throws so many pop culture references at you in such a condensed period of time, and it also wants to make you aware that the pop culture references it aren't making it or it isn't making are the ones that would have been the filmmaker who made Ready Player One. Like, you know, there's a lot of that thing about, like, Spielberg didn't want to make a lot of Spielberg references in his 80s nostalgia movie, which is a totally strange sentence to say out loud. <laughs> um, but, like, this this movie, the, you know, the, the trailer, the first couple of trailers were basically like, look, do you remember the 80s? Because in the early 90s, because there are all these characters that you're going to love. And it became almost immediately, the focus wasn't like, is this going to be a good movie? But, like, let's break down this trailer and put, did you see the Battletoads? Did you see... Um, you know, Iron Giant, did you see like all of the other stuff? And it sort of right out of the gate set a weird tone for the discussion about Ready Player One that I think hasn't balanced out yet. You know, from the beginning, we were, it felt less like a movie and more like a 90 minute Easter egg. And I think that's kind of, that's kind of still where the conversation sits. I don't think they've ever, they haven't released anything, including the new wave of, um, you know, pop culture posters references to other movies and other properties like it just still feels like it's one giant easter egg and it doesn't feel like a movie at all and i think that's part of the problem at least from my perspective is we haven't we haven't anchored this around the conversation about craft or storytelling it's always been about like how are they going to work this yeah stuff yeah i mean my other thing my sense is that i'm kind of in this weird place with this movie where i i sort of agree with you that i'm almost dreading it as much as I am anticipating it. And I do feel like the internet has knives out for Ready Player One, the film, in a way that sort of baffles me because this is, in fact, you know, a Steven Spielberg film that's coming out. <laughs> and uh, we generally love Steven Spielberg. But I, I would agree with you that the trailers just um, fall flat for me. And it's just a weird place to be in where you, you know, you read a book that you have a great time with and enjoy. And, and then you hear that, you know, Steven Spielberg is adapting this film and it couldn't get any bigger than that, you know, and then to see the internet sort of turn on it and then to see the trailer sort of fall flat. Um, I'm definitely walking into the premiere tonight with, you know, a little trepidation for sure. So let's let's talk maybe a little bit too about the the movie itself because I I feel like you know you you can talk about the controversy and 
sort of the people's wide ranging responses to stuff. And I think you and I, because I, I know you well enough to say, I think you and I are sort of in the same boat when it comes to that. That's the bottom line is like, if it's not for you, that's fine. Like it's, it's not a big deal. Not every movie has to be for every person. So I certainly, if people are like, I am not interested, I am not excited to see Ready Player One, you know, more power to you. I'm not going to come down on you. And I don't think Ed will either about that. You know, there's a bajillion other movies that are released this year. Go see one of them. Um, but for those people that are going to go see it, you know, it's been too long for both of us, I think, to really think about the book in terms of adaptation and like, oh, did they get this casting right? So let's just talk about sort of the cast in a vacuum. You know, you've got Ty Sheridan, Ben Mendelsohn, Letitia Wright, Mark Rylance, a lot of really impressive names, a lot of, you know, for lack of a better phrase, internet darlings after Black Panther, Letitia Wright should be on everything and wants to be in everything. So, you know, does the fact that Spielberg has basically had his pick of a really interesting cast um, salvage some of this stuff? Because in the worst case scenario, this is a soupy CGI mess. And I'm not saying that's what it's going to be. I'm just saying that's the worst case scenario. That's what it is. And so the performances, even if it's just a lot of good motion capture and, um, you know, voice acting are going to be really important to maintaining some sort of emotional core. And I feel like the people are here to make that work. Yeah, I mean, I... I just sort of rewatched the trailer before logging on to talk to you. And I, I looked at the IMDb, IMDb page and I'd actually had no idea Letitia Wright was in the movie until minutes ago. Um, I don't know if that's because she's playing some sort of like CGI character that you don't see in the trailers or something. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, this cast is, is sort of like a magical cast that's been assembled. I, I'm actually a big fan of Ty Sheridan and that's another kind of, I guess he's not from Austin or doesn't live in Austin, but, um, you know, he, he was kind of got to start with, um, tree of life, I believe when he was much younger and that was shot down here with Malik. And I, I absolutely love him. And, and Joe, um, which was shot down around here with Nick Cage. I adore that movie. So you really are doing, you're keeping the, the Austin connection alive and I like it. I am. I am. But I mean, that's, that's the funny thing is that when Ty Sheridan was cast in this, that was another like huge win in my mind. Like, Oh my gosh, this movie is just like a, you know, a guaranteed smash. And then that trailer just was, um, as you said, so kind of just soupy and, and muddy and uh, you know, it just, didn't excite me. So I just keep being in this weird place of, of, you know, the cast being super, I mean, fantastically lined up, um, but still not necessarily seeing that magic spark from the trailers. I think you're right though, that a, a cast that good still has a chance of, of being the saving grace of the movie. Um, and I, you know, I am trying to walk in with, you know, my arms as, as open as I can to receiving this movie. Um, but it's complicated. And Mark Rylance, obviously, becoming a, a quick meme uh, isn't unfounded. He does look pretty ridiculous in the trailers and, and nothing like what I envisioned that that character to be. Well, let me ask, because, you know, if, if the last time that you and I got together, we were talking about a movie that had some um, arguably the best motion capture uh, available, which was the last Planet of the Apes film. So you know, for this one, you know, there is, because of the way that the the book is structured and because of some of the trailer stuff that we've seen, there is going to be a lot of some version of that. We are going to see, spend a lot of time in the virtual world with these characters and especially spend some time with that their avatars. And, you know, you can say a lot of things about Spielberg as a director and things he's done over his career and, you know, the um, impressive things that he's made. 
But one thing I would say is he he doesn't the um, CGI characters, the CGI model of characters is not something he spent so much time with. He feels like a director that has worked a lot um, with very practical effects and using, you know, using intelligent and smart CGI in films like Jurassic Park to sort of layer out and build out that blend of practical and digital effects. But this is going to be a lot of green screen stuff for him. And there is a part of me that's curious if he, you know, not to use this phrase lightly, but teaching an old dog new tricks. Do you think that Spielberg has it in him to shoot a movie primarily in front of a green screen and keep sort of that magical um, emotional connection with the characters that he has in his other movies? Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of in the, you know, don't bet against Steven Spielberg camp. Um, Fair. And I think that, uh, yeah, I think history has proven that's a good camp to, you know, hang out in. Um, I think uh, I actually was not a, a big fan of the BFG, but I do feel like the BFG was um, very much a movie in that type of mold, although it was probably just one major character that needed to be, completely rendered and motion captured and all that thing versus, you know, an entire world. So to be fair, um, I had completely blanked on the BFG when I was saying that. So that is a very <laughs> fair counterpoint. Um, you know, but uh, the BFG just um, worked for a lot of people and did not at all work for others. And, um, y- you know, but I, I do think you're right, though. I think the Reddit Player One is a different uh, league than the BFG as far as just, you know, everything on screen being computer generated versus a character or a major character. Um, the, you know, the problem is, is just the aesthetic of what's it called? The Oasis, I think Mm -hmm. is the name of the, the aesthetic of the Oasis from the trailers is just really the most troubling part. I mean, I do not like that aesthetic. I I can already tell that the movie is going to have to convince me otherwise, because I just, you know, there's just a stylistic decision that was made to make it look the way it does, or maybe more likely a thousand stylistic decisions that were made to make it look like it does. And I just don't like it. I just, it's this weird sort of dark gray, grimy looking, um, and very computerized and sort of, uh, cartoonized, um, in a way that I just don't like, um, I, maybe there'll be some sort of story explanation for that. Uh, and maybe I'll buy that explanation, but, um, you know, just coming off the, the trailers, uh, man, the aesthetic is not doing much for me. Yeah. It's strange too. Cause weirdly I, I find myself keep thinking about a movie that Spielberg produced, didn't direct, uh, Robert Zemeckis directed, but who framed Roger Rabbit as an example of sort of this world of brightness and color and, you know, where live action people could enter and there, that, that blend of fantasy and reality that I think was done in a really interesting way. And I, like you, I was just, I, the first time I watched that trailer, I was just so disappointed by the color selection, by um, some of the character modeling, by how it seemed like everything had was sort of run through a filter of neon and grit um, in a way that didn't really work for me at all. You know, I don't remember off the top of my head what the Oasis is supposed to look like. I think the Oasis looks like everything, depending on what level you are and what you've created for yourself. But yeah, you know, if, if this this is supposed to be a land of um, pure imagination, to borrow that from Willy Wonka, and it just it just seems like every CGI trailer for every movie we've ever seen. Like, I want to slap whoever designed that, like whoever did the production design for that on the wrists, because that's 
that that I, that has to have turned people off right out of the gate. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I, I don't know. All of a sudden, just the the crazy future world that Spielberg created in AI just popped into my mind, and that's a a, a colorful, bright, vibrant, sort of scary future world uh, that is sort of compelling and. Um, I, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe it's the difference between creating an amazing set versus, you know, building in CGI from scratch that um, resulted in this sort of gray, flat looking thing. But um, he's done it before, you know, he's created amazing worlds. So what do you think? I mean, what is, I, I usually ask my guests uh, a version of this. So I'll, I'll put it this way. What do you think is sort of the best case scenario for this? You watch this movie you come out, you absolutely love it. You loved it because it did X, Y, and Z. What do those things look like for you? What did Spielberg get right? What did the cast get right with Ready Player One for this to be a movie that you'll really enjoy? Yeah, I mean, I think it it's going to come down to the the characters. And like like we said, I mean, he's lined up a great cast. I mean, there's not really much of a question there. Um, and it's a question of whether the writing here is really able to sort of save the visuals. Um the, you know, it, it's also pretty clear from the trailers that the movie is going to be very different from the book. Uh, mm-hmm. I, like you said, neither of us probably remember the the just page to page details, but there seems to be sort of a, a an uprising and a authoritarian regime kind of thing, which um, I just don't recall being a major element of the book. And that that could be a ton of fun, actually, if it's written well and. Um, you know, that, that could lead to some, some inspiration. Um, so, you know, again, I, I don't want to bet against Steven Spielberg or that cast. So I think the the best case scenario coming out is that, yeah, you know, the aesthetic didn't do it for me in, in quite the same way that, um, some of his past films did, but, but the characters shined, the, the actors shined and, um, you know, I felt, kind of inspired or empowered or something. I mean, Ben Mendelsohn is about one of the greatest villains we have uh, out there working right now. So, um, you know, there's such a great chance that he's going to pose a a real significant threat. So, yeah, I mean, I could come out um, being pretty excited to see Spielberg back in, you know, top form as a kind of a blockbuster sci-fi filmmaker. Um, But that's feeling pretty optimistic. That's sounding pretty optimistic right now. I mean, no matter how you slice it, one thing to keep in mind is we're not going to get many more of these movies from Steven Spielberg. At some point, you know, he's he, he's making fewer and fewer of the crowd pleaser types and more and more movies, I think, that, that mean something to him and sort of the twilight portion of his career, not that he's anywhere near being done. But it's sort of good to take stock of that and watch, you know, appreciate another good movie in a genre that he sort of basically single-handedly created, which is the Hollywood blockbuster in the summer movie season. Um, and to kind of flip that script a little bit then, um, Ed, that's your best case scenario. What does your worst case scenario look like? What does Ready Player One do where you walked out and you get on Twitter and you're like, I hated that movie? Right. Yeah. I mean, well, the post was fantastic, if you ask me. And uh, mm-hmm. so so kind of like you're saying, I mean, I... Um, I definitely think Steven Spielberg still has a lot in him and so much to offer us. And, um, and the post just really got me, you know, got, got me going. I mean, I was, I was amped up when I got out of the theater and I felt like it was kind of his 
political kind of double middle finger to the current administration. And it just was kind of thrilling to me. And um, I feel like the worst case scenario coming out of Ready Player One is, oh, that that great blockbuster filmmaker, Steven Spielberg, has maybe passed his prime and and is no more. And uh, you know what? I'd be, I'd be very happy to get two, three, five more of the posts out of Steven Spielberg. But if um, that big blockbuster tentpole filmmaker is gone, that'll be pretty sad. And that would probably be the, the worst case scenario coming out of the theater. Okay. So we've got our best case. We've got our worst case. And now let's do our expected case. That doesn't sound so catchy, but uh, what do you have? What do you think on a scale of one to five is going to be your final impression of Ready Player One? I think I'm going to go extremely boring here and say 2.5. So straight down the middle uh, because of just, I mean, listen to our conversation. It's sort of like you have these, this incredible cast and you have this dream director lined up with this fun book. And so you, you know, there's a, there's a lot of reasons to hope that this will be good. And then you just have that stale limp trailer <laughs> looming over you and realizing that uh, this may not be the magic pairing that you hoped for. So I'm going to go 2.5. Um, and I also just have this sneaking feeling that that's exactly how I'm going to feel coming out. Yeah, I, I feel like I've agreed with my guests a lot recently, but 2.5 feels right to me. I think that, it, you know, you listen to enough conversations between critics and when I do this podcast, there's there's definitely a sense of, you know, whether you are looking for reasons like look expressing fears why a movie that you think could be good might be bad versus expressing reasons why a movie you think might be bad could actually be good. And then this is a conversation where I think we've kind of epitomized the latter, like a little bearish on right now, talking about it in terms of like, oh, but this could be good, but this could be good. And if my, you know, my history, my decades of watching movies have taught me anything is that usually when you're looking for reasons for a movie to actually be good, it means that the movie is not going to be that great or that you're not going to enjoy it. I think a 2.5, my my middle of the road, like I saw a movie, I probably don't remember it uh, a month from now, but I have no negative memories of it either, is about a three. And I do think there's going to be some stuff in Ready Player One that's just going to frustrate me and I'm going to feel like they could have had a better vision, that it didn't quite work. And, you know, not to be all doom and gloom because it's just one film, but I think there will be an element of like maybe, maybe this CGI, maybe this digital stuff is not really for Spielberg. Maybe he should stick to the more practical stuff because that's sort of where his his genius lies. So 2.5, um, and I, I'm just, I, I hope you get in tonight. I really do, but I'm just not excited about this one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a weird place to be. It's a weird place to be. Well, on that super downer note, um, the movie starts in like six hours, Ed, so you should probably get in line now. <laughs> yeah, I probably should. All right, Ben. Well, uh, we'll reconvene here in a couple of weeks for part two, but happy hunting. Welcome back, everyone, to this week's special episode of the Ready Player One After the Credits podcast. As a warning, for those of you that may not have listened before, we're going to go into this movie and we're going to talk about pretty much everything and anything. So, spoiler warning, 
all of the spoiler warnings. If you're not interested in having the movie ruined for you, back out, pick it up later. For the rest of you that are sticking around, and I think that should be the majority of you based on some of the box office numbers I saw, Ed, let's talk about Ready Player One. Let's start with big, broad impressions. How did you feel walking out of the movie? What did you think? Tell me everything. Awesome. Yeah, let's do this. Um, I'm super excited to talk to you about Ready Player One because uh, we spent so much time talking about um, how kind of ugly and bad we thought it looked going in. And um, for me personally, I had a blast watching this movie and had a really great time and um, was just so excited about the whole premise of your podcast being, you know, this uh, unfiltered thoughts going into a movie and then our unfiltered thoughts coming out. And, uh, you know, I felt like it looked sort of ugly and uh, I was just really going in with trepidation (laughs) in my heart. And but I also said you know, never bet against Steven Spielberg. And that's sort of how I came out feeling. I was like, yep, Steven Spielberg, you know, still got it. Uh, so I had a lot of fun. I don't think it's the second coming. Um, it probably won't even be the best movie of like the summer blockbuster season, but, um, gosh, for how cautious I was going in, I feel, I feel pretty pumped. Okay, that's good, because you're going to be the optimist in this podcast then, and I think I'm going to be, maybe not the pessimist, but um, let's just say that I was whelmed about Ready Player One. I was not underwhelmed, I was not overwhelmed, I was just whelmed. So let's let's dive into some more of the details here. You know, I think one thing that we had, and, and you just brought it up, one thing we had a lot of concerns about was the way that the Oasis looked and felt in the film. So let's start there. What did you think of the Oasis? What was Spielberg's visualization of what you remember from the book? You know, did it work? Did it not work? Yeah. Um, I don't think it ever really got past a, a basic aesthetic that was just sort of gray. Um, I, I'm not quite sure why the, the decision was made to, it just felt, um, uh, sort of colorless in a way. Like, um, even the characters, like the main avatar characters all had sort of like a gray skin tone, um, that I just didn't understand. So aesthetically, I don't think it ever really became something spectacular or something that I, I actively liked, but it did succeed in, um, just not making me feel like I actively hated it, which from the trailers, I really thought, man, I, I, overtly dislike the way this looks and feels and i think what happened for me was that the the visuals of the trailer just didn't have any weight to them but then when you're seeing those visuals in the movie itself they're part of a set piece almost almost always you know there's these like sort of classic spielbergian set pieces throughout which we can talk about later but uh they were kind of the saving grace of the movie for me so you know I didn't necessarily care for the aesthetic, but it didn't bother me in the actual watching of the film, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think that should definitely be a pull quote on the trailers. Did not actively make it hate it. Um, that's a that's a synapse quote. I just pulled that one for you. I, you know, I was not, I was not super thrilled with the Oasis, and it's 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 not a thing that I didn't think that it lived up to what I remember from the book, because as we discussed, like we were both there sort of like, that was fine. And we were done with it. Um, to me, it was just, I don't know. It was so visually loud. There was so much stuff going on and there were so many, um, 
so many, 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 many Easter eggs in the film. So many characters that pop in and you're supposed to be excited because you recognize Chucky or you recognize Freddy Krueger or a Battletoad or any of the, the countless multitude of little cross-licensed characters that showed up in the movie. I just, I never quite got over the, I don't know, I, I never quite got over the fact that in this limitless world where people could create anything and anyone um, that that was sort of how it looked. You know, if you, this is probably not a fair thing to compare it to, but like even if you go and look at like random Twitch streams of people that are in these completely, you know, created environments, things get weird. And more importantly, they get terrible. They get offensive and wrong about as quickly as you would expect. And I don't know, it was just, I, I never quite got past the point with the Oasis that it just felt like a it felt like it was a weird in, in environment that they had created where there wasn't the bad stuff with which we associate a lot of online communities. I mean, maybe we can talk about that a little bit more in a minute, but I just, I, I wanted it to be less of a video game and more of like this giant sandbox where everybody was just doing whatever and wherever, you know, this to me, the Oasis that they'd come up with just sort of felt like it was, you know, like a, um, a, a Capcom versus Marvel game where people get to choose pre-licensed characters and whichever one they want and kind of play with that. I, I it, There was a surprising lack, I guess, of imagination in how they visualized this and compared, especially compared to what it could have been. Um, that's me being a pessimist, I guess. Maybe maybe not the, the most fair read, but it just, I find it even, you know, like a week later after having seen it, sort of unmemorable which is the weirdest thing you could say about this free-for-all you know digital universe yeah yeah i i can't disagree with you um you're right i think the um the internet as we know it today is a already a, a wild west with all sorts of crazy corners of you know hatred and just uh debased anything you can imagine and uh certainly none of that is making an appearance in this PG 13 Spielberg film. So that alone sort of, um, you know, glares in the face of what we know to be true and real about the internet. So, you know, certainly that's a fair criticism, I think. Yeah. I guess it's just that thing where I, you know, I, the, for any movie, especially for a science fiction film, I want to feel that the rules that they're creating are have an, inter an internal cohesion. I believe that, the universe that they've created and the way that people act in this universe makes sense. And I just, I felt like if you created the Oasis, every character would be TJ Miller's character. Like there would be armies of that guy, not like one big bad that they're kind of fighting against. And, you know, it's not to, not to say that this is a, should have been a different movie and they should have made more, you know, adaptations um, or more liberties with the source material. But it just, it felt like sort of the shallowest version of what could have been a, a weird and imaginative um, universe, especially especially given the fact that it does, you know, everybody had sort of joked about it ahead of time, but there is a, an, a, just a legion of like, oh, I recognize that. Oh, I reckon, oh, I recognize that. Oh, I recognize that. Yeah, you know, so one thing that addresses that, and there's just, there's a major piece of both the book and the movie that, you know, you sort of have to buy or accept or swallow for any of this to work. And that's sort of this uh, device of Halliday, Halliday's fingerprints all over this world, uh, you know, this guy who designed this program. And, and for me, um, 
as a device, it, it always worked that Halliday himself as a person was so obsessed with these cultural references and everything that, you know, and then he created this huge, massive, you know, economic powerhouse of a product. And then the entire world becomes obsessed with 80s culture. So that that little device just is clean and clicks and works for me. And it And it sort of gives a pass to a lot of the nerdy 80s references like i think they're they're still there for like that point and look and and you know have fun experience for for the geeky reader but for me it like actually kind of just clicks as a narrative device i mean here's a guy who you know the entire world has come to revere somehow in this particular narrative and all the references are there because they're just kind of part of his particular character so that that just kind of clicks for me and works. It just feels clean. I'm not going to say that Halliday as a character totally works. I'm just saying that piece, that, that element of um, him being both a character and the like inciting incident of the whole story that works. And I also, I'm not going to say that Mark Rylance necessarily was the ideal pick for that role, but he certainly wasn't as bad in the movie as the trailers would have indicated. <laughs> what did you think about all that? Yeah. The, the affectations. I mean, I, I don't want to, well, let's, let's kind of talk about the end a little bit too. Like, I think that, that Rylance does the majority of the work that humanizes the character and really makes you relate to what Halliday was trying to create, you know, in that final scene. Um, I think you're right to say that, that, that maybe that binary take it or leave it component is a big part of how the Oasis is going to, is going to feel to you. I mean, one thing that I do remember about the books is there was definitely more of a sense of this was somebody else's play box that Halliday had created this universe and people could participate in it. But that didn't necessarily mean that like that the boundaries were going to go outside of what he wanted. So it was very much so his his play box, his his uh, area and his imagination being filtered through all of these different users. And I think there is a sense of that in the movie as well. I will say that um, it's hard not to view Rylance odd affectations and all as anything other than a, a really interesting stand-in for Spielberg, too. You know, there's an element of self-awareness that sort of runs through the film. Rylance is someone who changed pop culture by creating one thing. Spielberg is somebody who changed pop culture by creating another. And both creators are sort of self-aware in the fact that there are good sides and bad sides to the thing that they've created. So the movie, even though Rylance's acting choices are just beyond beyond strange at times, the movie really does work best when they're interacting with him or you know a memory of him or a hologram of him when Halliday has the opportunity to sort of you know turn to the audience and say here's what I'm about those I think are when the movie really sort of like the tone and what it's aiming for works and it's a shame in my book that those are so backloaded towards the end of the movie you know we don't really get a feel for that until after the majority of the film has happened yeah yeah I, I can feel that. Um, so, you know, one thing that I am interested in talking about with you and hearing your take, because we, we talked a little bit about um, it's, I think when, when people are almost offended by this movie, it's not just the idea of, you know, looking at these pop culture references and it being sort of this, uh, this just, eye rolling nerd factor, but it's more so, I mean, there's this sort of 
concerned that this is further like white male wish fulfillment um, kind of fantasy and that that's where the, you know, offensive elements may lie. Um, And I certainly am sympathetic to that. And I'm, you know, I'm also watching the film as a, you know, straight white male. So I'm curious if you felt like this was a, the movie version of the story, um, you know, sort of, perpetuated that concern or did it do a better job than the book with that? I'm, I'm curious what you think. Yeah, I think, I think it definitely, one of the, the problems again, going back to the Easter eggs is that it, it definitely does reinforce one pop culture experience, you know, one sort of um, straight line through the eighties and into the early nineties. One thing that is going to be most resonant to people that are our age, that are, you know, our gender, our race. And those are things that we're going to get a lot out of because I remember most of the things that they were referencing. I grew up with, you know, watching Back to the Future. I grew up with the Iron Giant. I grew up with all these different components. And I don't, it's it's this duality of like, I don't necessarily think that the movie or the book has their heart in the wrong place much like I don't think that the character of Halliday necessarily has his heart in the wrong place. But there is there is a sense here that like this is not, there's going to be a lot of people that see this movie and this is not how they would biograph their own pop culture upbringing. Um, and it doesn't, to me in the film, it doesn't ever become a problem. It's just always sort of in the foreground. And, you know, you kind of like it, it, it I, I like to speak a lot in terms of, um, baseball scouting metaphors because that's a lot of times where I like that's how I like to understand um potential in films and so I would say that this is a movie that that has a high floor but low ceiling which means that it's probably that the approach it takes and how it tells its storytelling is probably not going to be bad but it doesn't have a lot of growth potential either that's how I kind of came to realize it is like all right so this because we're focusing on this type of pop culture references it's not going to make it bad but it doesn't have the ability to reach and maybe become something a little bit more poignant or a little bit more insightful or inclusive along the way i don't know what did you think yeah i i feel like um this is a movie that i like your little baseball metaphor although i am not a baseball person i i would agree that it doesn't it doesn't really have a whole lot of potential to break out and become something more than the sum of its parts or bigger than the whole. Um, but at the same time, I do struggle to to find it particularly offensive. And I, I think one of the – so, yes, it's still a, sort of just a straight white male who's kind of just an avatar for the audience. He's a relatively bl- blank slate, uh, Wade Watts as a main character. Um, not thrilling, um, Definitely seen much more compelling characters uh, as leads recently. Um, yeah, and, thing, and I want to jump in there and yeah. say that 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 the not thrilling vibe could work for a vast majority of this cast. It's not a knock on them, but either because they're not given a lot to work with, or they're just not really connecting with the characters. There's just there's just a whole lot of like fine acting going on. Like it's fine. Sure. A lot of these people are fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I and I really uh, enjoy. Uh, quite a few of the actors it's just uh yeah there's there's not a whole lot there to work with it's just uh that never detracted heavily for me from the experience and part of that i mean 
I, I don't want to diverge too much. Part of that is like, I think the pacing and the set pieces and stuff that I think Spielberg is just great at. He, he just never let me get bored. But I mean, for me, I think just ideologically, one thing that I'm kind of interested in talking about is just the, this concept that I think what a lot of people find offensive about Ready Player One is this sort of geeks have inherited the earth and um, we haven't done a good job of it, you know? And um maybe the 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 central idea of ready player one is that there's this gold you know the right way to be a geek and holiday is looking for that right person to be the right kind of geek and uh you know sure i can understand that being um something that's offensive but what you know and as as geeks today we've we've shown that we haven't really done a good job, you know, we have sort of taken over and we haven't done a great job with, with that. And, um, but what I, what I kind of like about the story and think, you know, part of why I, why I think this is a good film and why I'm glad Spielberg took the reins is that I felt like he added some heart to the story. And, um, you know, Wade Watts has this, there's not a lot of depth to it, but he finds you know victory through a team of like legitimate real friends and there's just enough in there to show that you know your character matters and the decisions that you make matter and the the friends that you make matter and that might sound a little bit cheesy but um i feel like Sp- spielberg sprinkled enough of that in and i feel like it is sort of a commentary for geeks who just think that they're better because they're geeks you know i you've got to have something to back that up. I mean, uh, the world's not going to be a better place because of your pop culture knowledge. You know, it's going to be a better place because of the decisions you make. And, and so, I don't know, I feel like that's there. I feel like it's in there and, um, it's, it, I think it's fine if you do find it offensive, but I mean, I do think there's a heart at the, at the core of this or, and, and maybe that's a heart that Spielberg added. I don't really remember if that level of like camaraderie, was in the book or not. I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. Someone online, I don't remember who, um, made the comment that it's, it's probably the easy way out to blame a lot of the movie's weaknesses on Ernest Klein as the original writer. And also a little bit of an easy way out to praise the movie's strengths by saying, this is what Spielberg added to it. But it does sort of feel in this instance, like that is a, a, an accurate interpretation of the movie, if not the the path of least resistance. I think that a lot of the elements that work are the kind of things that we've seen from Spielberg before. Those set pieces, some of the connections, that that element of childlike wonder that he weaves into a lot of his films. You know, those things are uniquely his, and those are the parts of the movie that works. Whereas a lot of the things that a lot of the problems that you have with the book are problems that will carry over into the movie as well. So it's one of those things where. You know, as if you're a Spielberg fan, you know, maybe this isn't a movie that is going to be anywhere near his upper echelon of, of works for you, but you'll find stuff in there that you enjoy. You'll find those that bit of Spielberg magic that you like. And if you had a problem with the book, you're going to find a lot of the same problems in the film as well. And, you know, sometimes that's just how it is. It's, it is, if nothing else, a fairly faithful adaptation, for better or for worse. And... It does try and create characters that have a little bit more internal depth than the basic parrots of the novel that are you know, trying to just regurgitate pop culture information as quickly as they can. Where that ends up with it, I don't, I don't really know. Like, I am, again, I, I, I'm sort of just whelmed with this movie. I, 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 
I think I think that if for the people that might have enjoyed it and have been listening to this podcast, they've certainly turned it off by now. Um, so I want to I want to pivot a little bit and give us an opportunity to talk, um, especially to get your thoughts on some of that Spielberg magic, the set pieces, the action, you know, the things that only he can do on the level that he can do them. Let's um, let's go into some of the positives of the movie. Let's go into some of the things that made it really fun and interesting for you. Yeah, so I really do think that there was a lot of fun to be had in Ready Player One, the Steven Spielberg film. Um, you know, right off the bat, in the trailer, there was all these shots of this of this race with you know the uh, DeLorean and and all these vehicles, and and I just couldn't have cared less. And uh, it, it, I gotta say, it just that was like the perfect example of like I had so much fun watching that race play out, and there were there were stakes, and it was clear what was happening, and um, the 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 pop culture references. Uh, this is true throughout the movie, in my opinion. The, the references are like visual in the film versus written out in gory detail in the book. So, you know, a character swoops past the screen, or a design that you recognize pops up and and pops back out, and it's just enough to sort of stimulate you. But then the set piece as a whole of this car race is, you know, part of the central mystery. So it's it's you're seeing a fun race, but you're also like wondering what the secret is and how they're going to find this key that, that Halliday has placed. And, you know, those, those little things were just enough to, to keep me excited and thrilled by what I was seeing on the screen. And, um, and then, I mean, it's controversial, I guess, but I had a blast with the, uh, entire, um, shining set piece, which I guess was the second key element i had so much fun with that I, I don't really understand how they did it visually and i'm kind of shocked that it was in there for this like pg-13 semi family-friendly film so i had a really good time with that as well um and those kinds of uh moments were um truly spielbergian in my opinion because they just were standout set pieces um in a big blockbuster you know i mean i don't think this will be a movie that uh, really stands the test of time necessarily or holds up as top tier Spielberg. But I mean, it's possible that some of those set pieces were some of the most fun I'm going to have at the theater this summer. So, you know, I mean, that's, there's something to be said about that. Yeah. And I want to put a huge caveat in what I've been talking about because for as, you know, as, as pessimistic as I am about the movie and as many mixed feelings at best as I have about it, I have nothing bad to say about that entire The Shining sequence. You know, it would not be a surprise to me at all if we found out that the entire reason that Spielberg did the movie is so he could do this 10-minute homage to Stanley Kubrick in the middle of the film. You know, let's. Um, I, so I want to take a deep, deep dive into that because I we we usually in the pre section will talk about um, what we know going in, and I did not know that that was coming. Did you? Were did you have a an inkling? Had internet rumors and chatter worked its way down into you that you knew there was going to be this prolonged shining sequence in the movie? I had no idea. And, you know, maybe that's part of why it worked so well for me and why I had so much fun with it. I just uh, didn't know it was coming. And I just thought it was kind of hilarious. And I was I was equal parts like sort of tickled and just like smiling and also you know how one of the characters says, oh, I've never seen The Shining. And so you're just sort of like cracking up to yourself about what horrors this character is about to experience. And 
and then just the visuals of it and the sort of awe and wonder of like, well, how did they achieve this um, visually? It just was a ton of fun for me. And it really stands out, I think, uh, looking back on it. One, it really stands out because you have this character that doesn't isn't familiar with The Shining. And so much of the rest of the movie is kind of, and, and the book too, is these breathless um, descriptions by Wade's character of like, oh, I know this, this is this thing, this is on, you know, checking boxes of like pop culture references. But The Shining sequence, not only is it incredibly creative visually, but we spend the majority of it looking through the eyes of somebody who has never seen The Shining, who's experiencing this bit of pop culture for the first time, a, uh, a teenager who may or may not you know, have be prone to watching horror films, or we see a lot of conversations online right now about like, is the, you know, every, let me put it this way. Every now and then somebody usually from the guardian writes an article about like, is the shining actually scary? And so to be able to go on this journey in this movie where the, the knowledge of the film is not, or not a foregone conclusion where the characters don't know everything and have everything memorized, or at least are sort of, audience surrogate does not have everything about the movie memorized and gets to sort of experience it in real time. Not only is there wonder for us in the sense of like, how did Spielberg do such a faithful recreation of the movie? There's a second degree of like, is this what it's like for a teenager to be experiencing the shining in like 2018 or something like that? Like if it, it, that sequence had been representative of the film as a whole, I think I would have enjoyed it a lot more. And I think, a lot more people would be talking about it in a kind of a positive light. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's 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 hard to say because you uh, you don't want to think that it's it's like a scenario where you know there could be too much of a good thing with that. Like, it is possible that that <laughs> that sequence just standing out so much is what made it so great. And um, but I agree. I mean, it was just singular. You know, it was and it was fun. And I mean. I'm sure there's people out there who just absolutely hate it and just thought it was the worst thing ever, but uh, it just kind of cracked me up and it seemed like Spielberg sort of getting, getting away with one. Cause it just sort of felt like me. I mean, the, the, the woman in the bathroom scene of the shining is like just one of the scariest things I've ever seen in my entire life. And the fact that that is like one of the scenes that made it into this movie. And I just kind of, I, I was having a blast with that. Yeah, that is that whole thing from start to finish is so much fun. And it really it really sort of it does make me a little sad for the movie that that could have been. Um, and I don't want to harp on this too much, but there I mean there is there is a sense of of engaging with the material in a way that maybe some of the other challenges don't, you know. There's a lot of there's a lot of m- memories about things and like pop culture that we've loved and we do sort of tick it off and consume it. But that shining sequence is really the only thing in the film that I can remember where somebody is engaging with a piece of pop culture in in an authentic, immersive and enjoyable sort of way. And it makes these movies, it makes the things that they're in love with not seem like dead, you know, dead things on a page or uh, movies and, and artifacts to be collected. It really does make it seem like I understand why people, why pop culture means so much to people. So in a weird kind of way, even though that scene is for sure not in the books, and even though it's sort of a completely tonal departure from the rest of the movie, that really gets what the entire Ready Player One idea is of like, and whole geek culture idea is like, why do we love the things that we love and why do we keep coming back to them? That shining sequence gets it. And man, I wanted that like, 
it's it's I know that I'll, I probably won't watch Ready Player One in its entirety, if ever, for a very long time. But I know that I will go back on YouTube. <laughs> speaking of you know online culture, go back on YouTube and watch that clip probably twice the first day that it's available. <laughs> All right, so that was, this is probably not our most um, coherent and linear of After the Credits episodes, which probably speaks to sort of the movie that we watched and the emotions it engenders. But we are going to stick to the format at the end of it because these are things that are important and you have to have rules and structure, otherwise you'll never get a podcast episode done. So before we go on to sort of our final overall score and keeping in mind the just plethora of pop culture that's been thrown at us, what is something that you would seek out or encourage people to seek out that is either a compliment to, a, a good follow-up with, or maybe a palate cleanser for Spielberg's Ready Player One? Yeah, I'm ready for you on this one. So uh, I'm also maybe going to throw a question back at you because uh, this was actually my favorite uh, glancing reference that I caught in the movie and had a lot of fun with that. I think it was just in my opinion, a pure enjoyment of seeing something flitter past the screen that I recognized and uh, smiled at, which was uh, at some point in the race uh, sequence, they drove past a marquee, like a movie theater marquee, and it said something about Jack Slater on there, which was, of course, a Last Action Hero reference. And uh, I feel like Last Action Hero is a great time at the movies. It's a similar... uh, feel as far as the movie world becoming the real world or the uh, you know magic keys and magic tickets melding um kind of pop culture reality into the real world and uh you know it's a giant 90s movie that starred arnold schwarzenegger and um they promoted it with a rocket that they shot off into space and then it bombed in theaters and uh now it's a movie that i'm recommending on your podcast but it's such a good time and uh, if you even remotely had fun with the sort of magic ticket, Willy Wonka-esque elements of Ready Player One, you got to see Last Action Hero. All right. I'm going to abandon my recommendation. I had one in mind that was okay, but yours is so perfect that we're going to talk about Last Action Hero for just another minute. That movie, I think I saw it at just the right age, where it was one of those things where it sticks in your memory. Um, in my version of the Oasis, there's probably a nice little wing of my home dedicated to that. It is not necessarily a good movie. I think there's, well, I won't say that. I think it's it, there are reasons, good reasons, for why it was sort of reviled, and I don't think it's ever quite gotten the cult following or the reappraisal that it deserves. But it was a mind-blowing experience when you're like 14 and seeing it for the first time. I had action figures for Jack Slater. I don't even know why they were creating. Like It was that weird early 90s, mid-90s era where they were creating action figures for every single movie, even though a lot of them were rated R and probably shouldn't have corresponding action figures. Um, I was absolutely in love with that. I am. It's one of those things where much like the Ready Player One stuff, whenever another movie reference locked into place over the years, whenever I understood who an actor was or some a joke that they'd made or something like that, you know, that was sort of a point of pride for me. And I have to say that if I ever did, God forbid, lose an eye, I would have a smiley face prosthetic put in there like the next day, like Charles like Charles Dance did in that film. So I just I I love Last Action Hero. I think it is a big goofy dumb movie with a lot of heart and I'm going to double down on that. I think I agree. Both Ed and I say you should go out and watch Last Action Hero. And if you only have time for one, go see Last Action Hero first and then maybe Ready Player One. 
That's my recommendation. Yeah, definitely. And somewhere out there in space, there's a rocket with the Last Action Hero promotional branding on it that's just floating around. <laughs> space junk. And some alien species is going to pick it up, and that is going to be how they view the Earth is through giant Arnold Schwarzenegger on a rocket. All right, Ed, let's, uh, let's give this our final scores then. On a scale of one to five, um, what do you have for the elusive Ready Player One score? So, you, I mean, you said you were whelmed. I definitely uh, came out more excited about it. Um, at the same time, um, listening to all the things that we've just said, I mean, there's, there's not a whole lot of character depth. Um, you know, there's some soupy visuals, uh, you know, there's some stuff to at least question. Um, so I just, I, you know, I'm going to give this a rock solid three, um, and just say I had a great time with a three star movie, you know, and I feel like that's okay. I don't, I'm not going to remember this 20 years from now, but I had a daggone good time sitting in that movie theater. So three stars for you, ready player one. Um, as for me, I'm going to give it a two and a half. Uh, and that's probably a little bit of a warm feeling. I just, I don't know. It's, it's a hard thing to describe, but there are times in movies where you recognize that you are into them, um, where, you know, a, a point that happens in a film where you, you kind of have a moment where you consciously realize you've given yourself over to the performances or you've given yourself over to the story or the visuals or something like there is something there that works for you and for me i just never had that moment with ready player one there wasn't a performance that i gravitated towards there wasn't a character idea or visual outside of the shining that shining sequence really props up a lot of that two and a half star rating and if you liked it i mean obviously i am not someone who ever wants to rain on anybody's parade like if you like a movie you, you should like it and i'm glad that you do ready player one just did not work for me um and that's okay. All right, Ed. So if people want to talk Spielberg or Last Action Hero or, you know, direct a video or whatever they want with you on social media, what is the best way to reach out and get a hold of you? Absolutely. Yeah. I am at Ed underscore Travis on Twitter. And you can also find Synapse on Twitter at, at Synapse News. As for myself, you can find me on the Twitters, unfortunately, um, unfortunately for all of us, at Labsplice, that's L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. You can follow this podcast at, at One Perfect Pod or the Mothership at, at One Perfect Shot. Please be sure to subscribe, leave a review, let us know what you think, unless you think that we and me in particular were sort of unfair to Ready Player One, in which case email Neil at rejects, I think filmschoolrejects.com. I will not have to read it, and he will just tell me that I should do a better job on the podcast. Ed? It was a pleasure to have you back, and uh, we'll get you back on soon. We'll do something that maybe is a little has a little less stakes writing on it, and something we can, in, I guess, enjoy a little bit without some of the controversy and discussions in the back of our head. I'm into that. 